America has been so relegated to bunnies and eggs and pastels that uh, it's hard to even know when we are actually seeing what is true about Easter. That's why we have tried to be careful to call it Resurrection Sunday, just for the sake of helping us remember what exactly is going on in this weekend. There's nothing wrong with a good chocolate bunny with peanut butter in it. Nothing at all wrong with that, actually. Um, I think that that can be done as an act of worship uh, myself. If it's eaten, if you eat it with a grateful heart, then it is uh, honoring to your Lord. There's nothing wrong with jelly beans. I'm a big fan. We've been picking away at our jelly bellies for my mom for the last week. Nothing wrong with any of the things that we enjoy during this time of the spring season, and yet none of those, none of those really help us as Christians. They don't really aid us during this time as believers. And the assumption would be this morning that you've gathered, I trust, because of your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Surely there are some who do not know the Lord here. You might be deceived. You might think that you have some relationship with Christ. Some may not be deceived and know that there is no relationship, but many of us would profess faith in Christ and enjoy the benefits and the blessings of being a part of his family. And nothing about our culture's interpretation of the Easter season helps us, doesn't aid us in our thoughts. Which makes it all the more difficult for us to consistently renew our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2, so that we're transformed into the image of Christ and not conformed into the image of the world around us. It's not that conformity or the fighting of conformity means that we don't enjoy any of the cultural aspects of this celebration weekend. But it does mean that all of the cultural celebration, all of the cultural aspects of the celebration are extremely secondary in our thinking because we are first Christians, then we are Americans, then we are our last name and our family. We are first and foremost followers of Christ, if in fact you are a follower of Christ. And so it is our priority, it is our intention to give ourselves entirely to God's interpretation of this weekend. And interestingly enough, we've already mentioned it this morning, God's interpretation of the Easter weekend is for every weekend. There is no set-aside weekend that God says this is right now at this particular time when the moon is in its particular pattern over the earth. This is when I want you to remember that my son was sacrificed and was raised from the dead. You won't find that in your scriptures. You won't find that in your New Testament. What you will find is that there is to be a consistent pattern of meditation on the reality that we're focusing on this weekend. And so I'm glad that many of you have joined me in the pastels, and I'm glad that many of you have eaten more sugar than you should, and I'm glad that many of you will have less sleep this week because your children are eating more sugar than they should. And I'm glad for you grandparents that bunnies were purchased and other things like that are enjoyed, and yet I trust and I hope, and it will be my goal this morning, to place those things in the secondary category in which they should remain. Because we are believers first. We are followers of the one resurrected first. And so our cultural adaptation, our cultural conformity must fall underneath. It must fall in the the line of 
in subjection to the very mind of God as revealed in His Word. And so our goal this morning is no different than any other Sunday morning. It is to come again to the mind of God revealed to man and allow Him to speak to us directly. His Spirit, for those of us who are in Christ, is confirming the truth. He is helping us apply the truth and assimilate it into our lives. And it is the same task that we enjoy each time we gather together with the Lord's people on the Lord's day for the worship of the Lord, that is, the risen Christ. This is not an exercise that takes place once a week and then goes undone for the remainder of the week any more than today's phenomenal feast for which you will probably need to ask forgiveness, not thanks, would sustain you for the remainder of this week. How much ham could you eat on a Sunday that would sustain you through next Sunday? You say, well, don't tempt me. Okay? No, we would eat a meal on Sunday, we might eat a grand meal on Sunday, and then we would prepare ourselves to eat again on Sunday evening, and then again on Monday morning, and Monday noon, and Monday evening, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's no different with what we do here each week as we gather together to worship corporately. We are engaging in the very activity that we have done privately, now in public. And so the ideal would be that as we study God's word, this would have been the pattern of your week. You would have gone to the mind of God. You would have listened to the voice of God as revealed on the pages of Scripture. And now we come together to enjoy the collective study of God's word. The benefit now is that we are not tucked away in our private devotional life with God. We're not tucked away in private with the Spirit, in private prayer, in private singing, which probably should remain private. We're now corporately gathered in public to do the very same things, carry on the very same devotion. We have sung together for the encouragement of each other. We have prayed together for the encouragement of each other. And now we come, unlike any other time of our week, to listen to God's Word together, to focus our attention on the standard, the mind, the revelation of God Himself. Now, when it comes to the resurrection and to our focus on the resurrection, there's probably no more comprehensive New Testament text outside of the Gospel accounts than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the most conclusive portion of Scripture as it pertains to the specifics of resurrection life in Christ. Two years ago, to the day... I was here on Easter, and I spoke on Easter evening from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. No doubt many of you have kept those notes very close to you. Many of you, no doubt, have gone over them this morning with your families to rehearse the great things that we learned together two years ago on a Sunday night. There were probably, I don't know, 30 people here on that Sunday night, And maybe one of those 30, because he told me he remembered, has remembered that we studied this particular section of Scripture. It was on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, two years ago, that we looked at the second paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, and we asked the question, what if Christ wasn't raised? What if it's all a scam? What if it was a mistake? What if it was a farce? What if it was the wrong tomb? 
What if it was empty because he was never there in the first place? What if he had never died in a swoon theory that he had somehow passed out and come back out of his coma and walked away? What would have happened? What are the realities that are at stake if the resurrection were not true? What if was the question. And it's the question that Paul asks in those verses to make his point from a negative perspective. We're going to focus our attention this morning on the next paragraph, verses 20 through 28, and not what if Christ hadn't been raised or what if the resurrection had not occurred, but in fact it has occurred. Therefore, this morning we're going to study resurrection realities from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. We are no longer in the land of the hypothetical from verses 12 to 19. We are now on the sure ground of fact, historical reality, actual events. And Paul turns a corner from arguing from the negative now to point us in an argument towards the positive, and I trust it will become clear for you this morning. Let me read. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 28. So bear with me. Follow along in your scriptures, and I think this will set a good context for us to know where we are in the letter to the Corinthian church. Paul has just concluded in chapters 12 through 14 a very specific and pointed look at the life of the church as it gathers together. Corinth was a church that was in desperate need of counsel and help, and now he focuses on a particular strand of false teaching that had had crept into the Corinthian body. And we begin in verse 1. You can follow along with me. Now, I would remind you, brothers, Paul says, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Now here is the primary importance for Paul. That Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Cephas being Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And verse 8 says, last of all, as to one untimely born or born out of season, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And you remember the testimony of Saul of Tarsus. Along the Damascus road, he saw the risen Lord in all of his glory as one born out of time. Verse 10 says, but, I, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. That is all the messengers of the gospel. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And Obviously, that was the message that was being uh, discussed at the church of Corinth. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, and here's where we answer the question of what if, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if we're living life and all there is is what we have today, then we are a pitied people. But in fact, verse 20 starts, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted, that is, there is an exception to the Father who put the things in subjection under him, that being Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, who will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord for our consideration this morning. In verses 12 through 19, if you were tracking along, the question of what if Christ had never been raised is answered with these seven realities. If Christ had not been raised, if the resurrection never took place, if all of this is a lie or a tragic mistake, then this is what is true. Number one, Jesus is still dead in a tomb somewhere. Verse 13 and verse 16 tell us. Apostolic preaching is worthless. Verse 14. In other words, your Bible might as well be thrown in the trash. It's futile. It's vain. It's empty. It's of no value. Christian faith is worthless. Verses 14 and 17. Apostolic preaching is lying about God. It's a false witness to be dealt with harshly. Christians are still living in the power of sin. Your battle as a believer with sin is just a figment of your imagination because you are totally under the power of sin if Christ is not raised. Dead Christians are gone forever without hope. All those who died as members of the family of Christ perished. That is, they're gone. They've been lost if the resurrection never occurred. And finally then, Christians are to be pitied above all mortals because they live their lives as if there's an eternity And if Christ is not raised, there is no eternity to come. So Paul lays out these negative arguments, seven of them, to help bring the people to realize the necessity of the resurrection of Christ and the implication that if Christ was raised, all who are in Christ will also be raised, which was the the dangerous misconception in the early church, both in Corinth and then in Thessalonica, we see the same problem occurring. Not understanding the timing of the Father, not understanding the timing of, of God's plan in the big picture, they awaited the return of Christ, and they began to be concerned that they had missed it, that there would be no resurrection. 
that there would be no eternal life granted. Paul is desperate to set them straight. That brings us then to verse 20. And Paul moves us forward with two inevitable realities that flow directly from the truth of the resurrected Christ. There are two realities that we're going to look at this morning, and they flow directly out of the reality or the fact of the resurrection of Christ. These aren't difficult for us to see in the text, and yet they are difficult at times for us to understand or to wade through. These are not easy verses, but I trust as we study them together, they'll become more and more clear for us. Two inevitable realities that exist and extend from the resurrection of Christ. In other words, if the resurrection happened, these two things, they're guarantees. These are the guarantees of the resurrection. These are the guaranteed benefits of all who have taken part in the resurrection through faith in Christ and who will enjoy the resurrection in the future for an eternity. Number one, then, the first reality, inevitable reality that flows from the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection secures imputed life. The resurrection secures imputed life. Verses 20 to 22 say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, verse 21 says, as an explanation, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 20 is a transition verse. It takes us from the hypothetical to the fact Paul's moving us from fictional discussion of what if to non-fiction reality of what is. And the reality that flows from the resurrection is that it's secured for us imputed life. Now, you all have benefited this morning, and I trust I don't insult your intelligence or your vocabulary, but you all benefited from late evening last night. I came back late to home and was talking with Renee, and she said, well, what are, talk to me about what we're going to do tomorrow. So this is our practice on Saturdays. We open up God's Word. We talk about it. We discuss it. And I said, you know, it's really neat. This passage breaks down into two sections. It secures for us imputed life, and that's all the further we got. What in the world does imputed mean? That was the question. And you benefit from that. I left it here because I think it is the right word, and yet it is a good question to ask ourselves. Maybe that's even in your Christian lingo. Maybe you've added that into your Christian vocabulary. You've right-clicked on it and said, add the dictionary, and you have no idea what it means. Imputed life. What is it that has been secured at the resurrection? Well, imputed life is simply found in verses 21 and 22. And the reality is that imputation is the legal crediting of one's actions to another's account. And we talk about this, but we usually don't talk about it in this context. Is there a word that comes to mind when you hear imputed? Specifically from the book of Romans. When we find Paul writing to the Roman church, he speaks of an imputation being imputed with Christ's righteousness. I heard a lot of shh, off. righteousness. We're imputed with his righteousness. That is, we as sinners are stamped 
Not by our own merit, but by his sacrifice, we are stamped with the righteousness of Christ. That is, it is credited to our account. When the Father, the judge, looks at our account, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And when he looks at his Son, he sees the full punishment for our sin. So Christ has been imputed with our guilt, and he has paid in full for it. And we have been imputed with his righteousness, and we will enjoy for an eternity the benefit from that imputation. The resurrection secures imputed life. That is, without the resurrection, you would never know the life that is explained in verses 21 and 22. There would be no life after death. There would be no existence for you unless there was this resurrection. Verse 20 sets this up for us with that last little phrase. First of all is the declaration that Christ has been raised. The last little phrase of verse 20 says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that that really doesn't connect, maybe at the surface level, with many of us. The first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. The idea here is the down payment. Christ is the front runner. He's the forerunner. He's the first fruit of the crop. It's the guarantee that the remainder will come in time. And so that first fruit, that first harvest is given as a down payment to say, I am going to stick to my promise. You will receive the rest of the crop. The crop, in this case, is the resurrected lives of all who die in Christ. Christ stands then as the down payment from the Father. His resurrection is the front runner. It is the first fruit that guarantees the pledge for the remainder of the crop. We enjoy the imputed life of the resurrection, and that is explained to us in verses 21 and 22. little word for at the beginning of verse 21 sets us up for an explanation. And Paul here, in logic, works from the general to the specific. So in verse 21, he tells us that by one man, death entered into humanity. And that one man's name was Adam. You cheated. You looked at verse 22. Okay. He starts with the uh, the general and he moves us to the specific. One man brought death for the remainder of humanity. Happened to be the first man. And all the rest of us were imputed with the death of Adam. You were born with it. It's a part of your nature. It's the result of your sin. It's the wage for your sin. Then the follow-up argument is, then, if Christ is raised, then by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. And that's the general idea. One man ends up with death for everyone, and one man ends up with resurrection for all who are in him. Verse 22 narrows the funnel down for us. We start with the broad, and we go to the narrow in verse 22. He tells us, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The statement of fact is that Christ has been raised. The reality then that flows from the resurrection is that all who are in Christ will also be raised. This might seem elementary or basic, and yet this is at the core of every other part of our Christian lives. 
This is at the foundational level of what it is to be a follower of Christ. See, you were born, you were born with an imputed sin nature. You didn't pick it. You didn't come out of the womb neutral. And at some point later in your life, you decided to take on the nature of Adam who sinned first. You were born with that nature. And as soon as you were able, as soon as you were ready, you acted upon that nature as well. You were born with the guilt and you acted upon it and brought more guilt upon your heart and your life before a holy God. And now those who have come by faith place their confidence in the cross work of Christ, in the sacrifice of the perfect lamb. In Christ, you have now been imputed with eternal life. Something impossible apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something impossible apart from Easter Sunday morning when Mary and the ladies come to the tomb and find it empty. Go back, tell the disciples. They don't believe them for a minute. This is the most far-fetched, cockamamie story they've ever heard in their lives. And so Peter, being the guy with initiative, says, I'm going over there to see this. He runs over there, and what he finds is that the cloth that had covered Jesus was still laying there. And now he knows something's up. Without that event, without the morning of Sunday, after the Sabbath, after the Friday, noon to three, crucifixion of our Christ, there would be no eternal life for you and I who are in him. This is the great benefit, the first benefit, the first reality that flows from the resurrection. Those in Adam die, and those in Christ live. You are walking around every day. You are working alongside of every day the living dead. They're dead already. And unless they are quickened by the grace of God and brought to faith in Christ, they will die an eternal death. They will live an eternal death in separation from God. And that was our plight as well. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, brought life to our hearts. We've been imputed with life. This concept is not foreign to the remainder of Scripture. In fact, in the second letter that we have to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, this is probably a memory verse of many, for our sake, for our sake, he, that being God, 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake he made him, that's Christ, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that phenomenal verse? That in him we might become the very righteousness of God through Christ. Romans 5 Verse 12 to 21 explained that Christ stands as the second Adam. The first Adam was created. The second Adam was not created. He is an eternally existent being. The first Adam failed in bearing the image of God. The second Adam lived in perfection, bearing the image of God in its fullness. The first Adam imputed death to all who would follow. All of his descendants, including us, were born with imputed death and guilt. 
the second Adam, by his cross work and his gracious sacrifice of his own life, brought imputed righteousness, which results in imputed life. This is the inevitable reality that flows from the resurrection. You say, what is Easter? What does Easter mean? It means that we celebrate in a very focused and special way the facts of the resurrection and the benefits then that flow from it. The benefits are unbelievable. They are inevitable. They are guarantees, and yet they are so beyond what we could ever think that a holy, perfect Creator God would ever in any sense, forgive sinful people who stand in opposition to him and who live in hatred of his very person. And yet through Christ and through the resurrection, these realities have been guaranteed. Imputed life is just as factual as the resurrection is itself. As true as the resurrection is, so true is the imputed life that those who are in Christ enjoy. Now I got to thinking to myself, how is it that that should apply to our lives? I mean, that really, there, this is not an exercise in knowledge gaining. Uh, the goal here is not to store up and puff up big heads that know some things from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, myself included. The goal is that we live out our love for Christ We apply what we know so that he receives the glory, so that he receives the honor, and so that we are humbled before his perfect standard. So how is it that this should affect our lives? Not today, but every day. What is the resurrection to mean? What is the imputed life to mean to the life that we live here and now? Well, this is, first of all, this is the basis of an eternal perspective. Right? Eternal perspective. That is the Christian mindset that looks at life as a very small piece of eternity. This life is but a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. And the believer views his existence with a keen eye to eternity. And our 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 burden, our struggle is that we constantly become short-sighted. We constantly can see what is near and we have a hard time keeping our gaze on what is far. Ends up being worldliness because we live as if right now, today is all there is. How is it then that we could renew our minds so that our eyes become focused not on what is in front of our faces, but what what, what is to come for an eternity after our 70, our 90 years, our 30 years, whatever the number of our days. How do we do that? Well, one way for us to do that is for us to meditate on this reality that flows from the resurrection. That is, there is an eternity coming, and I know it's coming because Christ is the first fruit. He is the down payment. He was resurrected, and I am in him. Therefore, this should press upon me. This is the basis of what Colossians 3.1 tells us as believers should be the standard of our lives. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. The believer is one whose chin has been popped up because he has been raised with Christ. He knows eternal life. He has come by faith to embrace the work of Christ as a substitute for his sin. And in turn, his eyes are turned upward and he focuses his attention not on what is here, not on what is now, but what is there and what is for an eternity. This is the basis of the Colossians 3.1 mindset. And it produces then in us the Colossians 3.5 lifestyle. We put to death those things that are wicked and sinful. And over in verse 12, we put on the holiness and the character of the God we will spend eternity with. You follow? The resurrection and the imputed life that we enjoy because of the resurrection is the basis of our eternal perspective. Our eternal perspective is the the driving force behind a life that is conformed to the character of God. See, I'm battling with sin. I'm struggling, and I think I'm losing a lot more than I'm winning. Have you focused your attention? Have you focused your attention on the reality of eternity? Is your heart meditating on the truth that Christ has won for you and it has been imputed to you to live? This is the basis of our seeking things above, of our setting our minds on things in heaven so that we might be so heavenly minded that we would be of some earthly good. Right? There is no such person who is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. That's not what Scripture teaches us, folks. It teaches us that the more heavenly minded we become, the more earthly good we are. This is the fruit of a meditation on the reality that flows from the resurrection. Not only does it drive an eternal perspective which presses us forward in our sanctification, in our growth in holiness, our development of God's character in our lives, but it also is the basis for our hope. The assured confidence, Scripture teaches us that hope is not like, I hope it doesn't rain today when we have our picnic. Hope, biblically, is a confidence in what God has said that it will, in fact, come to pass. And the hope that we have for eternity is based squarely upon an empty tomb. That's the only place it finds its validation. So we talk about our hope of an eternal life, our hope of heaven, our hope of loved ones in the presence of God. Our hope, our hope, our hope. Our hope is a settled confidence that there is an eternity in the presence of God for those who are in Christ. And that only exists because Easter Sunday took place. This is the first reality that flows from the resurrection of Christ. We enjoy the resurrection security of imputed life. Now, secondly, and we've got to move forward now, in verses 23 through 28, we find the second reality that flows from the resurrection. And this second reality is similar to the first and yet a little different. The the resurrection secures not only imputed life, but the resurrection secures for us victorious life. It's not just an imputed life everlasting life, a life that goes on without end 
when we are brought into the presence of God. But it is a victorious life, lived in the presence of a victorious Savior, a victorious general who has done battle and has won the war. Verse 23 tells us, but each in his own order. In other words, there is an order to these events. Christ, the first fruits, same idea as we found in verse 20. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. This is the intentional order of God and his plan. Now these interesting words that start out verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. And Paul is constantly, if we were to read through Paul's writings on a regular basis, he is constantly looking forward to the end. He's looking to the the ceasing of what is now and the beginning of what is eternity. Paul had an eternal perspective. And part of that eternal perspective was a meditation on the nearness of the end. And so he draws our attention when reflecting back on the fact of the resurrection of Christ, he draws us back to the eternal perspective that sees the end is near, but the end. What do we find then in verse 24? What is the end? What is the life that has been imputed to us in Christ? What is its value? What is it that we look forward to in the resurrection? What is it that we anticipate what we find in verse 24 when he that is christ delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death the factual resurrection of christ set in motion the victorious end times. In other words, the the clock is set. The timer is on. We have kitchen timers. We have microwave timers. We have to like distinguish between beeps, which timer is going off. The timer was set on Resurrection Sunday because it ushered in the beginning of the end. You see, there will be no great act of God. There will be no great segment of God that will follow this before eternity is ushered in. This is the last time. These are the last days. Christ has been raised. God is gathering his church. And Christ will return and as a victorious leader, battle until all are put under his authority. Forced under his authority. The resurrection secures the inevitable victory of the kingdom of Christ. And what we find, what we've been studying in Matthew, if you've been with us, is that the coming kingdom of God that will be granted, given to God the Father by Christ, will include as its people the kingdom citizens. The kingdom will be delivered to God the Father after destroying every other small k kingdom, and it will secure for us the inevitable victory of eternal life. No authority, verse 23, 24, and 25 tell us no authority will exist except the authority of the risen Christ. In verse 24, we find 
or 25 rather, that he must, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now why is that? Why is it that Christ must reign, he must battle, he must lead in the war until everything is under him? Well, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1 when David says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the name for God, Yahweh said to my Lord, that is my Adonai in the Greek language, my my Lord, that is Jesus. And the promise that we find in Psalm 110 verse 1, from Yahweh to the Lord, that is from the Father to the Son, is this promise. Sit at my right hand, Son, until I make your enemies your footstool. And Paul has a has a look back at the prophecies of the Old Testament as he looks forward to the end of time. The final enemy that will be put underneath of this Christ in the victorious life that we will live is death itself. And the resurrection guaranteed the victory over death. We sang a little while ago, O death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your power? All of those concepts flow from this one reality, that death as an entity was conquered, it was defeated. It's over for death because of the resurrection. A day is coming when death itself, Matthew 28 verse 18 tells us that death and Hades will be thrown into hell. Death itself will be done away with. It will be cast into hell. Verse 27 and 28 carry on this idea for us. The resurrection not only secures the inevitable victory of the kingdom of Christ and his kingdom citizens, but it also secures the inevitable subjection of all things under God through the risen Christ. In other words, our eternity, our existence in Christ, in the presence of God himself, in the new heaven and the new earth, after the bloodshed of the end and after the destroying of creation to remake a new sinless earth and heaven. All of that will be without any opposition. There will no longer be sin in opposition to God. There will no longer be powers that are battling against His purposes. There will no longer be death that will end the life of His people. All will be subjected under God through Christ. We find it in verse 27 and 28. Paul here sounds more like the Apostle John because he writes almost in a circle. And so the words start to blur in our brain and we have a hard time holding it all together. But he says in verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is Christ. That's Psalm 110.1. Everything has been put under Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, Psalm 110, it is plain that he, that is God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, the one who grants that everything be under your authority, that one cannot also be under your authority. Does that make sense? Maybe we think back in the Old Testament sense of the Pharaoh and Joseph. Joseph was second under Pharaoh. He was the delegated leader of everything there was in the kingdom of the Egyptians. Their empire 
their reign was underneath of his authority. And yet in that delegated authority, that delegated leadership, Pharaoh himself was never under the authority of Joseph. In some human sense, that helps us understand, and though it won't totally satisfy, it helps us understand the relationship within the perfectly unified trinity of the Father to the Son. The Father grants that everything be subjected under His Son, and yet the Son is not in leadership or in rulership over the Father. Now look now at the end of verse 7 or verse 27 rather, it says it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under subjection, all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You're just going, oh, if there's one more subjection in there, I'm going to just, I'm going to croak. I can't read another subjection Every word is starting to turn into subjection. It's all running together, and our brains can't handle another shun word. All that says in verses 27 and 28 is that the end is victory. Jesus Christ will reign until everything is put underneath, and when everything is put underneath, he'll present it to the Father. Father, here is everything. Here is my kingdom. Here are my kingdom citizens. Here are all who have been conquered. I lay it before you. We are victorious. He will lay it back before the Father. And in the perfect, glorious unity of the Trinity, they will reign and God will be all in all. It will be the final exaltation of the humbled servant, the Son. This is the result. It is the reality that flows from the resurrection. There is a victorious future life that awaits us of which our Christ is the first fruit. You will enjoy the benefits of a life victorious in every way. You will no longer battle with your flesh, for your flesh will be done away with. And in your resurrected body, the, even the principle of sin will be done away with. You will not battle the desire for sin, for the desire will be done away with. You will not battle the deterioration of your body because of the results of sin, because there will be no deterioration of your body. You will be perfect. You will be glorified. You will be enjoying the victorious, imputed life that was earned for you at Resurrection Sunday. This is the glorious good news of the Gospel. All this was done for us, not by us, not on account of us, but for us by the perfect Son. So how does that apply? How does all of the subjection apply to my life today? Well, let me encourage you with this little fact. We know the end of the story. You know the end of the story. And like one man said, I've read the end of the story and we win. It's exactly right. We are victorious. There is an imputed, victorious life that's coming, and we know it. Therefore, that changes the way we think and the way we act and the decisions we make today. We must live then as those who know what is coming, and we must declare the good news 
as those who know the end for the unbelieving. Think about it this way, and this hopefully will bring this to some freshness. You have the light. And all around you, there are people who are groping in the darkness. They have no idea what's coming in the end. They have no idea what awaits them. There you are, hoarding your little flashlight, your little light, because you know the end of the story, you know what's coming, you know the path to take, and we should be sharing it with the desperation of knowing everything will be put underneath the sun. And if you stand as one who is opposed to the sun, and you die in opposition to the sun, you will be put under for an eternity. You will die an eternal death in separation from God in a very literal hell, a place of fire and torment. And it will never, through all eternity, it will never be enough to cover the guilt of your sin. And yet, as bad as that bad news is, we who enjoy the resurrected, imputed life of Jesus Christ, have the good news to offer that if you will simply turn from yourself, turn from your own effort and place your confidence in the cross work of Christ who is risen, He will stand in as your substitute. He'll take your place. And at the cross thousands of years ago, by faith, Christ will pay in full for what you could never pay for even in eternity in hell. That is the good news. And the reality that everything will be put under Christ should drive us not only to live in light of that, to live with a mindset towards heaven, to live with a heart to portray this truth with our lives, but we must speak it, we must preach it, we must declare it, because we know the end. We know the end, and we win. And that's great confidence. And we know the end, And all who stand in opposition to Christ lose. That should break our hearts. We should break us to the point of speaking the truth consistently with those that we come in contact with who do not know the risen Lord. I stand convicted with you. I am not aware enough of the resurrection. I am not aware enough of the imputed life and the victorious life that is coming, I do not have an eye keen enough to eternity that it would drive me to share the gospel with with the kind of urgency that we sense right now as we interact with this passage. My concern is that we're almost done. And within minutes, we will be jamming ham and potatoes into our mouths. I mean, that's really my concern. That's been my concern all week. That's been my prayer throughout the week. Because within minutes, we'll be talking about what happened last night in March Madness. We'll be talking about any number of other earthly, now, worthless things. We'll be enjoying our families, our friends. We'll be fellowshipping together, and yet... I am burdened that we will walk away and we'll say, that's great. Wow, we have a resurrected Lord. Let's eat. What a tragedy that would be. 
What a tragedy to come in contact with the very inspired Word of God, the mind of God given to us, the revelation of a resurrected Christ who has provided imputed life and victorious life, and our response is to enjoy our meal and get up tomorrow and go to work. A couple questions in conclusion. First of all, Have you ever known the resurrected Christ? Have you ever known this one who is risen from the dead? If not, will you turn today? Today is the day of salvation. You are promised no more days. You may enjoy them, but to presume upon God's plan for your life is foolishness and pride beyond belief. If you will humble yourselves, if you will be broken and come to the end of your own effort to earn God's merit, to earn His favor, to earn His love and affection, you'll come to the end of yourself in brokenness and in mourning over your sin and fall at the cross of Christ, falling at the empty tomb and saying, this one, I believe this one is the substitute. He will save you. God will rescue you. He will impute to your account righteousness. And the benefit will be an imputed life for an eternity. And if you don't, be on alert that you are more accountable now than you were an hour ago for your rejection of Christ. He will put all things under subjection. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, What is our response? Are we pursuing a life lived in resurrection reality? Or is this our Easter time? We enjoyed our our jelly bellies. We had some chocolate. We had a good time with family. And we read about the resurrection. It was just a good Easter. We did all of our traditions. Or are we pursuing a life that is driven by these resurrection realities? Because the fruit of it will be borne out in our thinking, in our actions, in our attitudes. Are we persistent? in the process of renewing our minds through the Word of God? Or are we becoming more and more and more conformed to the world around us? The resurrection is a factual event in history that has an inevitable and eternal consequence for all of humanity. Our prayer ought to be that we would live in the truth, we would live in the reality that began our worship service this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This should be the testimony, the banner that we wave as the followers of Christ, the followers of the resurrected Christ, the ones who enjoy life eternal.